We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, March 22nd, 2021, along with Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. A week and a half are we from opening day, April 1st, and the man who we now know officially will be the Nats opening game starter will be on this podcast in just a bit. Max Scherzer, the ace, the three-time Cy Young Award winner, the future Hall of Famer, on this installment of the Nats Chat podcast in an exclusive interview You do not want to miss what Max has to say about the state of baseball, including the looming CBA Armageddon and the pace of play issues. But before we get to that, a lot to get into with you, including the latest on a Nats bullpen that doesn't look anywhere near as deep as we thought it might be. Uh, Troubling health news the other day popping up with Will Harris. A rough exhibition debut for Tanner Rainey on Sunday. Though, Mark, uh, (laughs) nowhere near as rough as what went down with our old pal Gio Gonzalez on Saturday night. I saw this. I said, we got to talk about this on Nats Chat. I know it's exhibition season, but the old ex-Nat Gio, Nat Gio, seven runs, one out, and that Nats win over the Marlins on Saturday evening. He got pulled twice, Al. The way they're doing this in spring training, you know, you start an inning, and if you get to a certain pitch count, you can be pulled and then go back out for another inning. He got pulled in his first relief inning after he didn't get anybody out. I think it was six batters. Got pulled, came back because he needed more work. And in the second inning, he got one batter out and had to get pulled again. Not good. This was his first appearance for them. He's trying to make the team uh, as a non-roster invitee. It was actually the first time in his life he's ever pitched against the Nationals. Never did it when he was in Oakland A, hadn't done it as a brewer uh, or who else was with the White Sox. So that was a tough one to see. I really hope because I love Gio. As a, he's a great guy. Everybody with the Nationals likes him. They want to see him still have success. You just hope that that wasn't one of those really, really bad spring training outings that has ramifications long term and that he gets another shot because he, he obviously deserves it. Now, I heard a rumor that Don Mattingly told him before the game it was an NLDS Game 5. Is that true or false? Oh, oh, low blow. Come on. Funny, but low blow. I, I just wanted to know. I, did, I, I, thought, I, I thought I heard that rumor somewhere. But anyway, uh, that was something else with, with uh, Gio there on Saturday evening. But he is a former Nat. We talk about the current Nats on this podcast. You can tweet us. At Nats underscore chat, you can email us questions, comments, advertising, inquiries, Nats chat podcast 
at gmail.com. Now, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you know that Mark's wife put out a request, a challenge to you, the Nats Chat podcast listener, (laughs) to see if we could find an audience in North Korea, of all places. Because we've been talking up how we've got this international presence. we got people from all over the place listening to the podcast, corresponding with us. And sure enough, Mark, your wife's wishes have been met by Rich Park in South Korea. And he emailed this the following. Again, you can reach us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. I doubt you will be able to get someone in North Korea to listen to the podcast, but I could book a tour to the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. This is the area where visitors can see the actual border and see the North Korean soldiers on the other side. I could then download the podcast when I'm on that side, (laughs) although I guess my cell phone is still technically getting data through a South Korean cell tower, so maybe it doesn't count after all that work. I I think we'd have to count that, Mark, wouldn't we? Oh, that absolutely. Talk about dedication here to go to the demilitarized zone, technically cross over into North Korea, download the podcast. That, to me, counts. Obviously, we're going to need him to take a photo of this just so we can have you know the visual evidence of it. And, and my wife had another suggestion to, on top of all that. We need to get him a Nats Chat t-shirt yeah. to wear as he's doing this. <laughs> And then next can start a you know a whole uh, a whole merchandising operation as as Mel Brooks and Spaceballs merchandising merchandising. So you know ultimately we'll have Nats Chat the T-shirt, Nats Chat the coffee mug, Nats Chat the flamethrower. The kids love this one. Spaceballs the lunchbox, Spaceballs the breakfast cereal, Spaceballs the flamethrower. <laughs> the kids love this one. We can do a lot of good stuff here. Yeah. Now, Rich, the other thing is you're going to need to get a photo with Kim Jong-un. All right. So we want you listening to the podcast with Kim Jong-un. All right. If you can pull that off, you're the all-time number one listener in that chat. All right. So we'll see if you can make that happen. Maybe you're better off not trying, though. We'll see. Way to go, Rich. I mean, I mean, let's give Rich his due here. This is really impressive. And the kind of dedication that that shows you what kind of fans the Nats have and what kind of listeners we have. They are willing to go literally the extra mile <laughs> for us so far as they will go across the border into North Korea just for us. Rich is an all-timer, man. So outstanding email from you, and uh, we've been getting a lot of great feedback from all you guys. So thanks so much for the support, for subscribing, rating, reviewing, spreading the word about the Nats Chat Podcast. Remember, once the regular season begins, post-game pods up the mornings after Every Nationals game. All right, so before we get to our conversation with Max Scherzer, let's get into the most recent Nationals news, and we begin with news involving Max Scherzer, as on Sunday, the expected became official. Davey Martinez, during his post-game Zoom press conference, officially announcing Max as the Nats' opening day starter. Max will be opening day starter. Nobody on this planet is surprised by that. It's kind of interesting, though, I guess, because it came after an outing from Max that wasn't exactly his best. Uh, Four runs in five innings on six hits, including a couple of homers and a double a walk and a wild pitch in a 6-2 loss to the Mets on Sunday afternoon. Now, we all know we don't read too much into the exhibition game results. Max did have six strikeouts. And I know, and Mark, you tweeted this, one of the homers was actually a result, perhaps in part, of Max working on a slide step. So no one's reacting too much to this, but we get another Max outing. He pitches uh, relatively deep into the game, and he is, in fact, going to be that opening night starter for the Nets. The key number from this start, Al, is 90. That's how many pitches Max Scherzer threw. 90 pitches, 64 strikes. By doing that today, he's got one more tune-up. It's going to be Saturday, actually, in a B game against the Astros. 
because the, that's where it needs to be to line them up for opening day, and they don't have a, an official game scheduled that day. So to get to 90 today, that means he's good to go. You know, he is built up. And remember, at the beginning of camp, we were talking about a sprained ankle that was delaying him. And so to get from that to 90 pitches here on, uh, you know, March 21st, that to me is the most important sign there. And as far as, you know, the results, he was talking about things he was working on. The the first homer to Michael Conforto was on a first pitch changeup, the kind of thing that Max says, hey, this is, you, you try to do these things. That's a pitch that ultimately you want to be able to, to throw, get a quick strike. Turned out Conforto was sitting on it and hammered to center field. Well, now Max knows that. Next time he faces him, maybe he won't try that. And the other homer to Lindor, like you mentioned, there was a runner on first and, and Max hasn't had a lot of opportunities to work on his slide step, trying to stop the running game. So he was focused on that, not as much on the pitch. He left a fastball over the plate and he said, Lindor, he's supposed to hit a home run on that pitch. So these are all things you put in the back of your mind. And now, uh, you know, in 10 days when it counts for real, he's going to remember that. And I think you're going to see him take a very different approach against these same hitters than he had in, in this uh, spring training start. I have a question, and that is this. So, because Steven Strasburg is coming off this left calf ailment, no one is making an issue of this. And I think everyone kind of understands that, yeah, it's cool to be the opening game starter, but, like, at the end of the season, it doesn't mean anything in terms of whether you're actually the team's best pitcher or not. Like, so many things can change, et cetera. But given that Steven Strasburg was the 2019 World Series MVP, Given that Steven Strasburg now has a contract that is larger than Max's, right? $245 million versus Max's $210 million. I think a year ago at this time, you could have actually made a very strong case for Strasburg is the ace, not Max. That Strasburg had surpassed Max as the Nats' ace. We're not really saying that now. Strasburg, of course, missed most of last season. He's dealing with something else right now, and Max is healthy and up until Sunday had looked outstanding in his recent exhibition games. But what about that? Like, couldn't you make the argument that, hey, this should be Strasburg's rotation and Strasburg's spot as the opening game guy right now? You absolutely can make that argument. Uh, I remember even talking about it and, and hearing something about it last year coming off the World Series, that maybe that was something they would do if the season had started, you know, as scheduled on time. And certainly it was something that could have been considered this year. And if you look at what their pitching schedule has been, Strasburg's actually been slotted in front of Scherzer by a day or two. And so that made me actually think that maybe there was a chance they were going to do that. Well, no, in the end, it didn't work out that way. I think what I would say to it is this. I think it's a couple things. Number one is that I think the opening day start matters to Max Scherzer more than it does to Steven Strasburg. I think if you were to tell Max, no, you're not going on day one, that he might take that a little bit harder. <laughs> not that he doesn't respect Strasburg. Of course he does. But Max is the ultimate alpha male. And to be told you're not the guy who's going to take the ball and lead us into this season might have been a little more difficult for him. Whereas I think Strasburg is much more comfortable being the second fiddle in this relationship. Now, he believes that he is a number one starter, of course. And we saw in the games that matter the most how he approaches that. There's no question that he thinks of himself as an ace and even the ace of the team. But he's always comfortable letting Max take the spotlight. And so I think there's a pitching argument certainly that you can make for this. But I think from a psychological standpoint, given both these guys' personalities, this is kind of always the way it's going to be as long as they're both here together and they're both healthy. And I think Davey understands that. And that while sure, you could argue that Strasburg's the better pitcher, maybe it gives you a better chance to win on day one, that it's not worth whatever other ramifications could come from that if he were to, to name a, a surprise opening day starter. 
with Strasburg, uh, where are we right now with the left calf strain? How is he looking in terms of availability for the start of the regular season? Everything is good. Uh, 74 pitches in, only five days later. Again, in, in a simulated game, so it's not an official game, but he should be slotting in now to face real hitters in a real game again. Uh, should have another one after that. Now, the only thing I asked Davey about, you know, is he ready to commit to Strasburg as the game two starter? And he said not yet. And this may have to do with a few things between Strasburg coming back from his injury, Lester coming back from his parathyroid surgery, and the fact they now have two lefties in the rotation, Corbin and Lester. He wants to think about, does he want those two lefties pitching back to back? And on top of that, if you look at the order they've been going on right now, it doesn't really look like the order you would typically have, one through five, best to worst. And they're getting at a point in spring training where it's kind of tough to start juggling guys around that much. So you may actually see the first time out to start the season. It may not be that, you know, what we think of as the one, two, three, four, five of Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, Lester, Ross. It could be fiddled around a little bit, both because of guys needing a little extra time given the injuries they dealt with and also wanting to split up the left-hander. So they're not ready to announce that yet, but don't be surprised if it's not Strasburg in game two. And if it isn't, that's not a reflection of how they feel about him as a pitcher or about his recovery from the injury. Yeah, I I know health is going to impact this, and and that's understandable. I would just point this out. The Nats' schedule to begin the season is brutal. Three games against the Mets, three games against the Braves, three games at the Dodgers, three games at the Cardinals, and then not long after that, you're facing the Mets again. And this is all in just April. You know, there's an old saying in baseball, right? You can't win a pennant in April. You can lose a pennant in April. These early season games do matter. And so I do think it's important. Your best pitchers are out there. And I I would caution against getting too cute with, you know, righty, lefty, mix it up. Like, just get your best horses out there, man. Now, again, Strasburg coming off the left calf, maybe that's what's at the uh, the crux of this. But I think that's kind of a sneaky thing about this upcoming Nats season. It gets late early from a standpoint of who they're playing. Like, there are some big games to begin the season, and uh, that's significant to me. You're right. Now, you said you can't lose a pennant in April. Well, the 2019 Nationals tried to lose a pennant in April and yeah. somehow didn't. But I know that is not a path that Davey wants to take yet. And he has repeated it over and over this spring, told guys, I want you to be May 1st ready on April 1st. So he's taking it seriously in terms of wanting to come out of the, the shoot a lot better than they have really in any of his three seasons as manager. They've never gotten off to a good start under Davey, something they did do under Dusty Baker. Those guys were coast to coast, first place, you know, never really had to sweat it. And so uh, Davey does think it's important. And uh, I don't know if he'll base his his rotation decisions on that, but as an overriding theme for his team, he absolutely wants them to come into the season with an emphasis on winning early and not just taking for granted that they can make up ground later. Before we get to the bullpen situation, when we last spoke on the Nats Chat podcast, we were getting set for the exhibition debut of John Lester. It came at a 3-1 win over the Mets last Thursday afternoon. One run in two innings through 21 of his 31 pitches for strikes. Uh, So far, so good in terms of Lester and uh, his availability for the regular season coming off the parathyroid surgery? Yeah, everything looked good there. Uh, Now it's just a matter of building himself up. He's healthy. There doesn't seem to be any lingering issues from the surgery. He may not be at that 100-pitch mark when it's time for his first start of the season. He understands that. He's okay with that. I think the team recognizes that they may have to limit him to something like 80 the first time out. But this might be why they carry an extra reliever or make sure they have a long reliever that's set to go that day. He's healthy. He feels good. And he's hoping that there are 
in the long term positive ramifications from this surgery for him to help him, you know, have some more stamina. But you may not see him in his very first start go the full six innings, hundred pitches that some of the other guys can do. Okay, so we led with the Max Scherzer being named as opening day starter news because that's the latest thing and that's kind of the sexiest thing. But the truth is, the most significant Nationals item over the last few days is what came out regarding Will Harris on Friday. Will Harris, who was supposed to be a key member of this Nats bullpen, diagnosed with a blood clot in his right arm. What that means, what it's going to lead to, we do not know. But Will Harris is a guy who the Nats gave a three-year, $24 million contract to He was one of the more consistent relievers for years with the Houston Astros. Consistent unless you're talking about him against the Nats in World Series Games 6 and 7. But I digress. Uh, He had been a very good relief pitcher. It was a good pitch to Howie Kendrick. It was not a bad pitch. No, it wasn't. Uh, It was a bad result, though, for Will Harris uh, on that night. Springer back, looking up, and this one is gone! It hits the foul pole, and the Nationals lead! But Harris had been a really good reliever. One of the few guys you could count on season in, season out. Going into his age 36 season, diagnosed with this blood clot in the right arm. What do we know, Mark? I mean, it seems like Harris is not going to be ready for the start of the season and may not be good to go for a while here. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, this is a little bit scary when you hear about things like this, uh, a blood clot in your arm. Uh, The good news, he kind of caught it early, it seems like. He didn't feel right the last time that he threw. They went and did the tests, found it, and now he's going to be visiting a a specialist in St. Louis who deals with these kinds of things. They really don't know what this means in terms of of coming back. I think it's probably safe to say he's not going to be on the opening day roster because even if he checks out fine and they send him back and says, okay, you can go start pitching again, he hasn't had a chance to build himself up. Uh, and, and so, you know, there really isn't enough time for him to do that adequately. And truth be told, whatever they end up finding and doing, it's probably going to require more recovery than that. I don't think anybody honestly expects him just to be given a clean bill of health and return to action. So this is a concern. It starts with just concern for him because this is not a baseball injury necessarily. This is something that can have more significant effects on you. I will note, and again, you know, we, we don't want to speculate a whole lot here because we really don't know what we're talking about, but the doctor he's going to see in St. Louis, Dr. Thompson, who has worked with a lot of professional athletes on issues like this, and he has been known to treat guys who have thoracic outlet syndrome. That's a serious injury for pitchers that can have a very long-term effect uh, on your career. So I'm not saying that's what this is. We don't know that. But clearly, they are concerned enough to be sending him to a guy 
who handles those kinds of injuries. And so I think if you're the Nationals, you have to proceed as if you're not going to have Will Harris in your bullpen for a while. And that's a problem because a bullpen that, you know, only a couple of weeks ago we were talking about, man, how much depth they have, maybe the most they've had in a long time. And all of a sudden it doesn't look nearly as deep as we thought it did. No, it doesn't. And, you know, you say thoracic outlet syndrome. That is a that's like a four letter word right now in the world of pitching. Like so much rather have Tommy John than have TOS like Matt Harvey, the collapse of his career. It's not due to Tommy John. It's due to the thoracic outlet syndrome where he is a shell of what he used to be. He's with the Orioles now. It doesn't get worse than that at this point. But yeah, man, (laughs) definitely hope for the best for Will Harris. But you're so right about the state of the bullpen because you've got this Harris news. We've been dealing with this Tanner Rainey uncertainty with this muscle strain near his right collarbone, and he finally makes his exhibition debut in the Grapefruit League game on Sunday. And it's only one game, but he didn't look good. He retires just one of the four batters he faces, gets charged with a run, uh, actually struck out Pete Alonso, but then gave up three consecutive walks. You have something like the Jeremy Jeffress mystery where, you know, he was with the team, then he was soon gone from the team, and we're still trying to understand that. But, uh, yeah, man, I mean, bullpens are, even when they're healthy and, you know, fully equipped, like, they're still kind of a question mark. We know the history with this ball club with the bullpen. It isn't good, and every year Mike Rizzo has to make an in-season trade for bullpen help. And now if you're down Harris and maybe you're down Rainey, or at least Rainey isn't what he's supposed to be, it's kind of Brad Hand and you cross your fingers with this bullpen. And Hand had a bad outing the other day as well, gave up a couple of home runs. Uh, Daniel Hudson, of course, is a big part of it. He hasn't looked great in spring training. Relievers, though, are, for me, always the toughest thing to evaluate in spring training. It's so hard to really gauge for a few reasons. You know, you're pitching in weird situations. You're not coming in in the eighth or the ninth. Typically, they want to get them in earlier in a game to try to face some better hitters. But sometimes they're facing backups. And for relievers who who thrive on adrenaline and the high leverage situations and a, a big crowd late in the game, you cannot simulate that at the ballpark of the Palm Beaches, you know, in the fourth inning. So it's always, always hard for them to really gauge where they're at. And so I, I try not to read too much into their performances, but it is a bit of a concern here that number one, that they don't have as many quality late inning relievers as we thought they would. And number two, the guys that they are counting on have not pitched so great. The best of the bunch so far has been Wander Suero, who all of a sudden is going to have probably a more prominent role than maybe they anticipated. They are expecting some big things from him. Hopefully he can take that next step up. You know, with Rainey, a bad first outing, obviously, but he talked about how, number one, he's healthy. So the the muscle strain in his collarbone is gone. He's not worried about that. He felt like this was really just more of a first time out in spring training, not in sync with his body. He's trying a little bit different mechanics with his arm slot, and he, he described his timing as being off. Essentially, when he, his, his front foot plants, where is his arm in its release point? And he could tell it wasn't right today. So that's not uncommon. That's not the worst thing that happened in spring training. The problem is he's only got about three more outings to attempt to fix it before he's got to pitch in a real game. And that was always the concern with him is that there wouldn't be a whole lot of time to get ready. So any one of these things individually, not great, but it's when you combine them all together that now you kind of have a little bit of a red flag and you, you do worry about what is the state of the bullpen on opening day. No doubt. And we mentioned Daniel Hudson, you know, Daniel Hudson, 2019 hero, of course, but he was really bad in 2020. And Daniel Hudson over his first four appearances, this exhibition season, three home runs allowed in four innings. You know, it was, it was not an ideal start for Hudson. 
uh, in this Grapefruit League campaign. Let me ask you this, and this is some good news, so we won't you know, be all gloom and doom with the bullpen here, but a real bright spot over the weekend for the Nats was that Austin Voth start in, in the Gio Gonzalez game on Saturday evening. Now, that was a start for Voth, but we are presuming that if he's going to break camp with the team, it'll be as a reliever. Voth, in that game, four scoreless innings, you know, I mean, I, to me, that was the best he's done so far this exhibition season. Do you think it's becoming more likely now that the, the two losers in the fifth spot rotation, Fetty and Voth, come out with the team to start the year in the bullpen, and, and maybe you do get some good production out of those guys? So at first, I didn't think that there'd be room for both of them because of the depth they had and the idea that you probably do want one of them still to stay stretched out and be ready to as an emergency starter if something happens. And Fetty, because he has a minor league option, would be that guy. A couple things here, though. Number one, there is no AAA to start the season. They're going to have to do the alternate training camp again until May. So, yeah, you could have Fetty down there and pitching on a five-day schedule as a starter but maybe they actually feel like it's more valuable to have them in the big leagues. And the other part, as we were just saying, the domino effect of of these guys who are not going to be there for them on opening day, and maybe a little bit of concern that your starters aren't all at 100% and, and you're worried about them needing more innings to cover them. Maybe they do feel the need to carry an extra reliever, and in that case, it could be both of them. So I'm curious to see with both. I think we saw last year as a starter, it just didn't really seem to work. But he's a guy who very typically can look great the first time through a lineup and then awful the second time through. And so there's always been this question of, could that actually translate well into the bullpen uh, as a guy who comes in and just pitches a couple innings, has better stuff, and doesn't have to face guys more than once? We'll see. He's never really done it, and he's not going to be trained necessarily to do that. If he makes the team, it's going to be as a long reliever who's on more of a set pitching schedule. But ultimately, that may be where he finds himself if he's going to have a successful big league career. Yeah, I mean, he has been more of a strikeout pitcher than Fetty, so both maybe would have that going for him, but obviously it's a lot. It's about a lot more than just striking guys out. Well, of course, the greatest remedy to a bad bullpen or an uncertain bullpen is an excellent starting rotation, and the Nats have had a terrific rotation for years, 2020 notwithstanding, and a huge reason for that, of course, has been the great Max Scherzer, and we bring you right now our conversation with Max. One out, base is empty. One and two, the count to Wainwright. Here comes Max. And a swing and a miss. He blew him away with a fastball. That's strikeout number 10. The fourth time in Max's career he has struck out double digits in a postseason game. First time as a national. He has 10 strikeouts here in the sixth. Well, we are very pleased right now to welcome on to the Nats Chat Podcast the Nationals ace, three-time Cy Young Award winner Max Scherzer is with us. Max, it's great to have you on, man. How are you? Good. How are you guys? Thanks for having me on. Coming up on the start of the season, going to have in the neighborhood of 5,000 fans per game at Nationals Park. What's it going to be like? How excited are you to finally have fans watching you guys play at Nats Park? Yeah, finally. Uh, I've been screaming about that since last, you know, when we started last season. Uh, you know, I thought we've been at sports in general, especially when you've been outside, that you, you could have fans. So it's good that we have them. It's not fun pitching in front of no, no fans. Uh, it stinks. It stinks for everybody involved. Uh, so the fact that we can get some Nats fans back in park, uh, that's a great thing. Uh, and hopefully as the year goes on, we can continue to get more in there. Now, because last year went the way it did and you couldn't have fans, you guys never really got that celebration with fans to raise the banner and, and all that stuff. So you're going to have fans on opening night, but it's not a full house. It may be a while till that happens. Have you guys thought about ideally how and when you hope to be able to celebrate the championship a year later with whatever fans you do have in the park? Yeah, I don't know how to really answer that. That's a tough one because, yeah, do, do we want to have that moment to try to have that? But 
it's also been kind of like we, you know, two years removed, you know, we had last year, we're trying to move, you know, move on to that. And, you know, we're cutting in 2021 and, you know, they, we got some pieces that aren't there. So it's a little difficult to try to recreate that moment when we tried to do it last year. I mean, it's all screwed up. There's no other way to say it, but you know, it, it's, it was screwed up for the Dodgers for how they wanted to win series. They didn't get a parade. So it's been a wacky year for everybody here involved. With where you're at in your career, and you know, you've been so good, you're obviously you know, well into your 30s at this point. Do you think about how long you'd like to pitch? I mean, would, would you want to do like the Nolan Ryan thing of just continuing to be a pitcher like well into your 40s? I mean, we are seeing athletes across sports push the boundaries of what you know, you're capable of in terms of aging. Do you think about that? Is, is it just a year-to-year deal? What's kind of your mindset with that? I mean, obviously you would like to, but I'm also, I, I like to kind of stay in the year by year um, and just kind of play it out that way. You have no idea what life's going to look like here for me at whatever stage you want to think about. You know, you could always have an injury and, you know, it could completely change, you know, your outlook of how you want to continue playing sports. So you know, I don't want to, you know, try to put out a date like, oh, I'm trying to play this long or this, you know, things can change. Life can change. But I do know this, that I, I really enjoy still playing baseball as much as I've ever. I uh, still love competing at the highest level. Family still uh, obviously loves for me to go out there and compete. They really enjoy it. My wife gets to take some pictures of uh, our kids, uh, Brooke and Casey, when they come to the park. And uh, they definitely love sitting in the stands watching, uh, watching baseball, watching me pitch. So, you know, when you start thinking about kind of the other things that are in life, the rest of my family members still really enjoy me pitching. So, you know, we're going to keep pitching. So, you know, obviously, it's hard for you to look that far ahead personally. And I think for a lot of people – it's getting hard to look too far ahead baseball-wise because we don't really know what the sport's going to look like a year from now. There's a, a lot on the table here coming up. We saw last year during the shutdown how difficult it was for the owner side and the player side to come together and find the right protocols to make the season happen. And then the CBA is set to expire next winter. Now, I know there's only so far you can go with this, but here, here's the way I want to ask it. It feels like on the outside there's a narrative that owners and players are just not going to be able to work together to get something done. And I'm curious from your perspective, give us a reason why you think we should be optimistic, why you do think that those two parties can find some common ground for the good of the sport or whatever you want to call it and avoid the kind of long-term problems that could arise if you guys can't come to a, to an agreement. Yeah, it's kind of like a mutual certain destruction if we both, you know, try to take this as far as possible. So, I mean, that, that's we have to stake it a game. You know, we see what happens when, you know, guys' careers, when you start pausing the season or if you, you know, you were, just, you know, take away games, you know, in the future. So hopefully, you know, cooler heads prevail. But with that being said, look, the players, we all kind of see this. I mean, the young guys, older guys, the veterans, uh, everybody sees problems within the game. We see some structural problems within the game. Those have to be addressed. We have to find a way to be able to, in our eyes, in the way we see it, change the structure of kind of how the game works, the economic the games, how the pie gets sliced up. So that, that the competition of the game remains at the absolute highest. We feel like the competition in the game, teams aren't as competitive as uh, they should be. We understand some teams are going to rebuild, but we just feel like there's too many teams that are not actively trying to win. Uh, and so however we want to address that, however, whatever it's going to take, the players are, I would say, very united. I don't want to say get a little very united. Um, from young guys that are just getting into the game to the veterans, everybody acknowledges that. And from the player side, we are going to do everything in our power to make sure that that happens. Where are you on the issue of free agency and how soon a player should get into free agency? We're seeing teams not want to pay guys now as they age. We're seeing guys, you know, be underpaid in their best years and then not getting the money, you know, beyond those years. Would you like to see it so that it's no longer, say, six years of team control and then you get into free agency? 
Yeah, I think when what you're uh, kind of alluding to was you go back and look at some of the previous, uh, you know, strikes, some labor fights. And one of the things was a grand bar. The grand bargain was that if you sacrifice early in your career, the later in your career, that that's when you get paid and you basically get made whole to be able to, you know, sacrifice kind of your your earning potential early in your career for to get, you know, the earning potential later in your career. We do as players as a whole feel like uh, that's been taken advantage of. We're constantly seeing forever n- numerous reasons why that we're trying to do everything. The game is trying to do everything in their power to devalue the veteran player. Um, and, th- and then that's when you look at how the structure of the game has been laid out, that they, when you go back to the grand bargain of, hey, we're going to sacrifice early to get paid later. And whether that's right or wrong, that's just how the game's unfolded. So um, when you look at that, that's just an issue you know, to answer your question, it, you start looking at free agency earlier, you know, that is something you look at, but you got to look at it in the grand, in the whole kind of negotiation. Of it. Is that one piece that we want? Of course, that's one piece we want. But if, you know, you got to look at what other things uh, can make the game better. So it's hard to say, yes, that's what we want or no, that's not, we're not going to go for that. But we are cognizant of that's how teams are behaving. And because of that behavior, we're going to have to make an adjustment because of that. So for those who, who don't know, Max is a member of the Players Association Executive Subcommittee. So, I mean, you are in these meetings. You're not just hearing from other people. You are firsthand involved in all these kind of discussions. And so that's why I think your perspective is always particularly important on this stuff. So you're talking about a lot of things that what the players obviously are, are most interested and most motivated in right now. What we already are hearing from the ownership side is they're talking more about things having to do with the the state of the game itself and pace of play, shifting uh, the style of play that we've come to see right now. Do you find that the players are as interested in that part of it as maybe ownership is trying to be right now? Personally, when I hear that, I feel like ownership saying that so they can offload the other more pressing issues. Uh, we feel like as players, we have very pressing issues that we want to address. And then when we hear ownership talk about the pace of play and other things, that, that that's not the pressing issues of what the state of the game is. We want to see teams compete. So if we see teams compete, I think the fans will show up. So we can we can work through some of these other side issues about how the game's played and what's going on. Uh, I feel like that's just how owners are paying players. They're looking for those three true outcomes. And they're looking, you know, guys are changing their swing pass, you know, to be able to do certain things. And a lot of pace of play is coming from the foul balls. I, I, you know, I feel like I've read, read before that half the reason why we have the games are longer is because of the foul balls. So you can try to come up with every which way to get rid of foul balls. I don't know how you're going to do that. <laughs> so, um, you know, to go back to that, it's a talking point, but it's not really a meaningful point. You made your feelings very clear on pitch clocks a couple of years ago. Has your thinking changed at all? Would you ever be open to those, or do you never want to see those as a part of Major League Baseball? Yeah, I never want to see a pitch clock ever. Uh, there's no clocks in baseball, period. Now, if you want to talk about how you could potentially you know, increase how pitchers work you know, quickly, there's different ways you can go about that. Being on the subcommittee, uh, you know, I take that seriously. I mean, I talk to all the NAS players, you know, making sure I get you know, kind of their opinions, but also guys across the league as well, um, trying to get their opinions of you know, how they look at things, not just our, my opinion or the NAS opinion, but also guys who I play with and played against and try to get their opinions as well. One thing I think, uh, you know, we could potentially look at is the role of timeout in baseball. Um, you know, how pitchers can step off, how hitters can call time, how infielders can call time. If we start trying to address maybe how we call time, uh, that could be, an, you know, a low-hanging fruit of how to try to address pace of play without doing anything drastic to change the game. 
when you start talking pitch clocks, that's drastically changing the game. And I feel like it can be manipulated. Even when we did have that little experimental, you know, pitch clock in spring training, you know, like you can, they had the clock up there and you can see it ticking down to three, two, one, and then you just step off. Well, what's the point of that? If I can just step off, there's no consequences to that. So there's no deterrent. You're not, I mean, are you really going to, are we really going to get into a ball strike based on a clock? I mean, because if that's the case, then I'm going to wind that clock down as much as I can and mess with the hitter. Then you're starting bringing a clock into the game. It really does not look like baseball from my perspective. I think you raise a great point here because there are these big systemic changes that can happen that do change the look and the way the game has been played forever. And then there are just kind of changing players' behavioral patterns that maybe over time have slowly shifted in one direction that maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, for whatever reason, guys are moving quicker and there wasn't this kind of thing. So I I think that's interesting that you mentioned that as as maybe a a way to get around that. Um, The other thing I want to ask you about, it seems to be accepted right now, this is the last year we're going to see pitchers hitting. I know you love hitting and everything that's involved with it, but I also know that you know what's good for the sport ultimately and what players as a whole want. Do you think it's just a foregone conclusion? Do players, are they that much in support of the Universal DH, or do you think there is a split among them at all that some of them do prefer the National League style still? I think you get a little bit of everything. I don't. We haven't taken like a vote amongst a player, player group or anything like that to really see where we are on this issue because we haven't had to really get down to it. But I mean, there's definitely guys who love the National League where the pitchers hit. I enjoy it, but I also can appreciate that Major League Baseball should be underneath, you know, like one set of rules. When you're at the professional level, I mean, could you imagine that in an NFL that, you know, there's no field goals in the AFC? Like, <laughs> that would just be, you know, you would just, you, you know, you just kind of scoff at that idea, but that's kind of what we do in baseball. So there's different ideas out there, you know, potentially how you could, uh, maybe merge some rules together that are out there that I like, but it's really a tough one to how that how that's really going to unfold. Um, for me, I, I'm, I'm kind of loose on it because I can see it's a complex issue because uh, there's a lot of things at play uh, coming into that. So I don't think it's necessarily a foregone conclusion that we're going to have a DH next year, but it would definitely would not hurt the game if there was a DH. I want to ask you about the science of what you do. There's never been more information than there is right now in baseball and specific to pitching, you know, things like spin rate, and pitch sequencing and pitch tunneling. Do you get all up in that stuff? Do you want to consume that stuff and know as much about that stuff as you can specific to you? Do you stay away from that and just kind of do as you've always done? What's kind of your general philosophy with that kind of a thing? Let's kind of put it into a, uh, there's two kind of categories here. There's an analytical side of baseball that's kind of, kind of shown. You have an analytical side and then you can just have your standard baseball IQ, which you, which you just come to know about baseball. Um, and you kind of have those two competing thoughts kind of consistently. And there's times where they, you know, conflict each other. And you kind of, it's kind of been fun to sit back here and kind of, you know, watch how that's unfolded over, over the past handful of years. And then as more and more kind of new stats come out there and see how they, whether, you know, they kind of support the baseball IQ, you know, traditional kind of baseball thinking or kind of more analytical side. And so, you know, for every stat, you always got to be able to take it with a grain of salt and how it's actually being, how you can actually implement it into a game and how you actually want to think about it. And then, but the same thing is you have a hitter who consistently pull the ball. Well, <laughs> your eyes can also be right, right as well. So it's a balancing act between the two. Uh, I don't think you, you don't ever want to get too overloaded on one side or the other because of the way the game continues to evolve and the way the numbers continue to evolve to get more and more detailed and can conti- really tell you some really cool stuff. So for me, it's, you know, be as educated as possible. I can learn as much as I can about the analytics and, you know, there's times where you use it, but at the end of the day, 
you've got to have feel for the baseball. You've got to have feel for pitching. You've got to have feel for your mechanics. I mean, you can't be out there with an iPad. They're just not, that's not going to happen. You know, you're not going to be, you can't throw a pitch and look at an iPad and then make an adjustment. That's just not, that's not baseball. So you have to have feel for, I missed with this pitch. You know, I thought I was going to throw it glove side and ended up arm side. What, what caused that, you know, part of the game caused that. And you gotta be able to make those type of adjustments on the fly in game. Uh, that that's real. You have to be able to do that. You know, there's no analytic for that type of feeling. So it's a kind of two-part answer. See, this is why I love talking to you about this kind of stuff, because you both are into the intricacies of it, while at the same time still loving the game for what it is. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And so that's why I want to actually wrap this up with this almost broad, very simple question to you, which is, as much as we hear about what's wrong with baseball right now, there's a lot right with it, too. And I'm curious, in your mind, what do you love the most about baseball? What is right with the sport right now? What should we be focusing on? instead of maybe things that we think are wrong with the game. The thing is that there's some really, really great talented players in the game right now. There's young guys, there's veterans. There's some really top tier talent out here that can really do some great things with the baseball, both on the mound and at the, at the plate and on defense. So when you get to see these guys, you got Trey and Soto on our team that can really, really do some special stuff. You know, you look across the league as well, uh, trying to going against these guys, um, you, you really run in some, really run in some tough competition as well. So that's what makes it fun is that, you know, everybody's in this arms race of trying to make themselves the best they possibly can be across the league. And you, you have to try to match that. You have to try to find a way to have, you know, these guys are really, really good and you got to beat those guys consistently, you know, year in, year out. And you might think you might've done it for a few years, but the next wave, the next generation of kids coming up, they're, they're just as talented and they're, they're able to make adjustments just as fast. And so how the game's being taught at the lower levels, you know, at the plate, these guys are, uh, able to do things with the bat that are coming into big leagues and be able to hit, you know, like for instance, I just feel like guys can handle velo from a young age way better than, you know, ever before. And so that, even though there's just way more 97, more 97, 98 more mile an hour fastballs in the game now. Um, so how that just has manifested itself uh, across the game from the pitchers and the hitter side, uh, that's what makes it fun. That's why you always get to see something crazy uh, every single night. And that's why I love watching baseball still. Max, uh, appreciate the time so much, man. We wish you continued success, continued great health, and uh, all the best to you. Really appreciate it. All right, appreciate it. Scherzer facing Molina with one on, one out. Here it comes. Swinging a ground ball to short. Turner has it. Shovels to Kendrick. Out at second. All day the throw to first. It's an inning ending. Six, four, three. Double play. The Cardinals get their first hit. First hit by a starting player in this series, but Scherzer erases it with a 6-4-3 double play in the side retired, sending us to the eighth inning. All right, great stuff there from Max Scherzer. You can tell why he's viewed the way that he's viewed. He's not just a great pitcher. He's one of the smartest, most thoughtful guys you'll ever speak with in terms of baseball players. He's got a great command of the issues, and you don't have to like agree with him on everything, but he definitely makes you think about things. You know, there's a lot that stood out there, Mark. I, I think one of the big things, though, is kind of how Max framed this whole pace of play scenario. I mean, this is a big, big thing in baseball, has been for a while, that it's not just the lengths of games, it's the pace of the games, how slow games are, the lack of action, right? The three true outcomes that we're inundated with these days, home runs, strikeouts, and walks. But the way that Max kind of put that, I mean, yes, it's a pro-player, pro-union position that he's putting forth, but that's a little different than what we're used to hearing. I thought it was interesting that he basically was admitting that he thinks the owners are essentially putting that out as a, as like their biggest concern, almost like a red herring 
to get everyone to look past the economic issues that clearly the players believe is is most important. The players are not <laughs> as uh, interested in fixing the pace of play issue or don't believe it's as big an issue, I guess, as maybe Rob Manfred believes. And so that could get interesting when it comes time to sort through all that. I did like what he said, though. I think it was in the answer to the question about the pitch clock, where he's obviously opposed to that. But he does seem to believe that there are ways to address the pace of play issue without putting a formal rule in that fundamentally changes the game. And that a lot of this stuff, and this can apply to the shift as well, it's a matter of just changing players' behaviors that have, over the course of time, developed into where they are now. And maybe they weren't this way a generation ago, or even when when Max was starting out his career. The question is, can players actually make those changes without being forced into it because of a hard and fast rule like a pitch clock? Yeah, and I think that's going to be tough. I mean, personally, I am a proponent for the pitch clock just because I don't know that you're going to convince these guys to change their behavior significantly. And there's no doubt if you do get deep into the weeds on why games today are so much longer than games yesteryear, one of the big things is time between pitches. Like, there are guys who take a painful amount of time. There's a great article this guy Grant Brisby wrote for SB Nation in 2017 about this. And he looked at two games, similar score, similar total number of pitches from, like, right around you know now versus, like, back in the 80s. And the difference entirely had to do with the time between the pitches. So I think baseball definitely needs to address that in some way. But, you know, I think about this too, Mark. I think there's kind of a fundamental thing with baseball, and that is there are 162 games per team per season. And I don't know that you're ever going to get more than just a handful of people, you know, relatively speaking, to invest themselves into watching every pitch of every game for 162 games. Like, it always makes me laugh when people comp baseball television ratings to NFL television ratings. There are 16 games in an NFL season. Like, anyone has the time to watch those. Very few of us have the time to sit and watch 162 installments of anything. So I don't know if you're baseball, you really need to get so caught up in this. The idea is just can you get enough people to follow their local teams to check in on games on a nightly basis? And I feel like that maybe is a more realistic way of doing things. In today's society, you know, instant gratification, et cetera, I don't think you're getting more than a few people to sit and watch you know, all nine innings of 162 games. I just don't know that that's going to go down these days. Right. I think even if they somehow got the average time of game down to two and a half hours instead of three plus, is that going to have a really huge effect on how many people are tuning into games? Probably not. Right. It's not about that. So, but I do think that's why the larger point here is that it's less about time of game and more about the pace of play, but also more action. And this is where the huge advances in the game that we've had And they've all been good in that we now know so much more than we used to. And this is going straight down into the dugout now. It's not just a couple of eggheads in the in the front office. I mean, everybody has access to this stuff now. Yeah, it's helping them be better pitchers, better hitters, maximize everything they get. But the unintended consequence of that is that it is making the game less aesthetically pleasing. It is leading to longer time between pitches. It's leading to fewer balls in play. We can all say, hey, strikeouts are sexy, like Max likes to talk about. Home runs are great. I love home runs. But when they're happening at such a rate and when there are so many, so much percentage of at-bats end in one of those three true outcomes, it does hurt the game from an aesthetic standpoint. And I do think MLB recognizes this. I'm not sure the players really feel like that's as big as an issue uh, as it probably is. These are some big weighty topics, and this is not going to be easy 
to overcome. And we haven't even gotten to the economic question of which there's clearly disagreement there. And so to me as a baseball fan, I am pretty worried about how these two sides can find common ground for the good of the game and not just the good of their own side of this equation. Because as you heard Max say it, if they can't, if they can't get something done and there is some kind of work stoppage, they all know what that means for the future of the sport. And it's not good. It's not good. Baseball skews very old. Baseball nationally is really falling off in terms of national appeal. Locally, baseball does well, but it doesn't do very well nationally. And, you know, you go bye-bye for a while, you know, half a season, even a quarter of a season, you're just off people's radars. Like, you know, people would be like, all right, whatever, you know, what's going on in the NFL? Like, I mean, that's the way things are right now. You don't want to lose that. The piece of the sports pie that you have, you go away for a while via work stoppage, that that pie is going to get smaller, you know? And, And people say like, well, they'll miss you and they'll be glad when you're back. I don't know about that. You know, people can learn to live without you these days with stuff. So definitely hope the owners and the players are able to figure this out. You know, Manfred and Tony Clark seem to have this dysfunctional relationship. That doesn't help things either. So we'll hope for the best. In the meantime, we do know there will be a 2021 season and we can't wait for that to get going. So again, uh, keep the feedback coming. Let us know what you think, what you want, your comments, your questions on anything we get into on this podcast at Nats underscore chat on Twitter. And you can always email us Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. And any Nationals radio highlights you hear throughout the season are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats chat podcast. What is this place? What is it that you do here? Merchandising. Merchandising? What's that? Merchandising. Come, I'll show you. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.